Welcome to the Levin College of Public Affairs and Education podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bowen. I serve as college lecturer and organizational leadership for the Maxine Goodman Levin School of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University. And today's session is the second in a series of discussion, which we are calling the Levin Masterclass. Um, this is a, um, a, a series of classes where experts share their skills and perspectives through career-focused conversations that are meant to encourage professional success of Levin students, alumni, and our many friends in the community. Um, you can view a recording of the first session of the Masterclass series on our website and watch Dean Roland Anglin speak with Levin College alumni David Zeckman about the challenges and successes of being a servant uh, leader. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Howard, uh, Senior Vice President of Research Evaluation and Learning at Covenant House. And we will be discussing his organization's journey to become a data-driven learning organization, leveraging data to inform its international programs and strategies to help youth facing homelessness. Uh, Dr. Howard has more than 20 years of professional experience in the nonprofit sector, including senior management, program planning and evaluation, data management and analysis, fundraising, and direct care. Um, he currently serves as the Senior VP of Research Evaluation and Learning and leads Covenant House's strategic efforts to achieve positive outcomes for and with youth facing homelessness. Dr. Howard's team supports performance management initiatives and has embraced Covenant House to become a learning organization that uses and implements rigorous performance measurement, continual quality improvement, uh, in search of program excellence. Prior to his work at Covenant House, Dr. Howard was the Director of Research and Innovation at the Doe Fund, one of the most successful nonprofit housing and workforce development providers working with homeless uh, and formerly incarcerated individuals in the US. He was also a researcher at the UCLA um, uh, Center for Civil Society, where he co-authored numerous reports on the nonprofit and philanthropic sector and presented research findings to diverse audiences at national and international conferences. David also teaches graduate level uh, coursework on program planning, design, evaluation, and grant writing with current adjunct appointments at both Columbia University and NYU. Um, Dr. Howard is a graduate of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, where he earned his doctorate and master's in social welfare and University of California at Berkeley, where he received his uh, bachelor's degree. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Great, thank you, Jeffrey. Let me um, share my screen and pull up some slides that I've uh, prepared for today. Um, and first, I just wanna thank you for having me. It's really great to, to be with you all. Um, and Jeffrey, thanks for your introduction. I recognize that today's topic is one that you have real expertise in. Uh, you probably could have been giving this talk uh, so I'm just grateful that you're part of this conversation as well. Um, I'm excited to share with you all a little bit about Covenant House and our work in recent years to become a data-driven learning organization. Uh, my aim will be first to provide a bit of a definition and a framework for what it means to be a learning organization. And then I'll share some concrete examples um, of what our data journey has looked like at Covenant House and talk about some of the key lessons that we've learned along the way. Um, but first, let me share a little bit about who Covenant House is. So for those who aren't familiar with our organization, uh, we're the largest international nonprofit in North America. 
providing both housing and support services to young people experiencing homelessness and human trafficking. We currently operate programs in 34 cities in six countries, including the US, Canada, Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. And at the core of our mission is a commitment to serve young people with unconditional love, absolute respect, and relentless support. And our service continuum spans from street outreach work in the community, to drop-in centers, uh, to a housing continuum that really runs a gamut from short-term emergency housing to transitional housing, even to permanent supportive housing. Uh, our sites provide wraparound supportive services like mental health and physical health care, employment and education related support, uh, among other things. And we also uh, incorporate public education and prevention work to raise awareness around the issues that uh, our young people are facing. Covenant House also strives to be a, a trauma-informed and a strength-based organization, um, and also to be data-driven, which is the focus of uh, my presentation today. Uh, so speaking of data, I'll spend just a couple of minutes uh, sharing some of the numbers and metrics that we typically highlight in order to describe the scope of our work and our impact. So last year, our programs reached nearly 43,000 young people across the organization. Our sites provided 730,000 nights of housing throughout the year. Um, and on average, there were about 2,000 young people per night sleeping in a Covenant House bed. We also provided 1.6 million meals over the course of the year. Um, and here you can see some of the core demographics of the young people that we serve at Covenant House. I won't go through all of the numbers, but you can see there's a pretty even split between young male and female identified youth, um, as well as uh, about 5% of young people identifying as transgender or gender nonconforming. Um, close to 30% of young people self-identify as LGBTQ+, um, and we've seen that percentage as high as 40% at some of our sites. In terms of race and ethnicity, about 90% of the youth we serve in the US and Canada are young people of color, with Black or African American youth making up the largest percentage. And then in terms of age, you can see that in Latin America, the average age for young people coming in uh, was about 14, um, and in the US and Canada, we serve a slightly older transition age youth population. Um, here you see a reflection of some of the core services and impact numbers from across our sites. I would say these numbers represent more of the scope of our services and outcomes. Um, you know, these are sort of more raw numbers and I'll talk later about how we treat some of these metrics more as key performance indicators where we look at rates and percentages uh, and I won't go through each of the numbers here, but they reflect some of the services I mentioned earlier around mental health care and job readiness and school enrollment, employment, and of course, movement into stable housing. So with all of that information that we use to tell our story um, and to gauge our performance year over year, it does raise the question of how do we get all of that data? Uh, and I can tell you that it's not a function of our sites simply reporting up to Covenant House International and telling us how many youth they served and their demographics, et cetera, although that's how 
we used to do things. Um, our sites now use a common data management platform, which is called Efforts to Outcomes or ETO. And what this does is it allows uh, all of our direct care staff in all six countries to document their work, to record uh, you know, the intake and assessment information, the services data, um, as well as outcomes that young people achieve. And last year, there were about 2,100 different Covenant House staff members who used our ETO system, which was an all-time high for us. Um, and I like to make that point because it underscores that the way we gather information and create opportunities for learning is truly a collective effort. And while my team is responsible for managing our data systems and producing reports for our sites and for the Federation, ultimately it's our frontline staff. They are the ones who are responsible not only for directly carrying out the mission with our young people, but for recording information in our system. And so the role that they play in our broader learning exercise uh, is truly paramount. Uh, and that's a point that I'll come back to uh, in a few minutes. So um, how did we get to this point in our data journey? Uh, it did not happen overnight. And actually the first crucial step in the process takes us back to 2012. Uh, which does predate my time at Covenant House. But that was a point when um, our senior leadership introduced the idea of moving all of our sites to a shared data management system. Uh, and we began at that time to socialize a set of common data elements and indicators and an initial outcomes framework. And at that time, um, you know, all of our sites were using a different local data system, and you can see some of those represented in the slide here. Uh, and so in 2013, we, um, the team that preceded me, began a two-year implementation process, and that brought all of our sites onto that common ETO platform that I mentioned earlier. So when I came to Covenant House in January 2015, uh, we were about three quarters of the way through that implementation work. And so the immediate goal then was to get everybody across the finish line. The other thing that happened in uh, 2015 is we uh, implemented and crafted a five-year strategic plan. Uh, and under that plan, I was able to, um, with my colleagues, articulate an organizational goal focused on becoming a learning organization. Um, and you can see some of the main objectives that fell under that broader category, a focus on data quality, you know, uh, refining methods and tools and a data culture, looking at best practices, looking at opportunities to engage in research, and I'll expand on, on all of this. But first I wanna talk a little bit about the language and the framing that we adopted when we introduced the learning organization concept. Uh, and there are multiple definitions in the field of what a learning organization is. Um, many of them come from and are largely applied to a for-profit context. Um, so, you know, we pulled from a few different places and came up with a definition that, that worked for us. So the language we've used is a learning organization uses data and evidence and knowledge to inform operations, to inform programs, to inform strategic direction and, and other activities like fundraising and development, all with an aim toward continuous improvement. 
And the other thing that we wanted to do was sort of establish a broader framing for what a learning organization looks like and entails. Um, and I like this pyramid design because it underscores the importance of establishing a strong organizational culture and a pervasive buy-in that supports learning. And in our context, this, is, this also reflects the critical role that our direct care staff play, which I mentioned earlier, uh, because without their commitment to this part of the work, without their belief in the importance of data and learning, the whole thing sort of crumbles. Um, and so I'll come back to this idea of a learning culture in a few minutes and some of the ways that we support that. The middle tier is really reflects the systems and the protocols and the procedures that we put in place um, in order to facilitate learning. So this is where our ETO system comes into play, the reporting tools, the analytics, the processes in which we're being intentional about using data and practice. Being effective in those practices helps to reinforce that learning culture and strengthen that base of the pyramid. And I'll share some examples later of what some of those practices and tools entail. And then at the top of the pyramid is that executive sponsorship piece. So this may be the smallest piece of the puzzle, but having that buy-in at the top, having leadership set expectations and follow up on those expectations for using data, leveraging learning, focusing on performance and improvement um, is really essential. So I wanna come back now to some of those initial strategic plan objectives that I introduced. Uh, the first being focused on improving our data quality. So as you'll remember at this time, when we unveiled our plan, we, we were just about done implementing our agency-wide ETO system. But just because we had all of our sites up and running on ETO, that didn't automatically mean that the data going in and the data coming out were accurate, complete, reliable, et cetera. So some of our initial strategies were really focused on designing and implementing practices to ensure that there was good data quality across our sites. So the role that we played was to engage in some data quality assessment work, uh, running reports, reviewing the numbers with our site partners on a quarterly basis, creating tools for them that they could use in order to detect when information was missing. Maybe that was you know, intake or assessment data. Maybe that was some of the outcome information that we are tracking. We created a data integrity plan template that we gave to our sites as a tool to help them um, articulate those procedures and protocols to identify roles and responsibilities with respect to upholding data quality. And we provided a lot of training on those things to our site partners. Um, one of the other ways that we tried to underscore the importance of data quality was by introducing an admittedly very rudimentary impact formula. Uh, and the formula was meant to illustrate that the way that we optimally learn from our data is by having key information in these three critical buckets that you see on the slide. We need first to understand, you know, who are the young people that we're serving? What are their characteristics? What are their profiles in terms of needs, lived experiences, et cetera? Uh, the second bucket is all about 
the services and the interventions, the programmatic journey that young people take and our ability to track what that looks like and build that into our analyses. And then lastly, we need to document the outcomes that young people achieve. And so the point that we try to drive home here is that in order for us to ensure that we're able to learn and understand how our programs are performing, um, we need to know what outcomes look like and how they may look different for uh, you know, different, young different types of young people or uh, look different based on uh, different trajectories and programming. We really need good quality information in all of these buckets. Another core objective that we targeted was around designing and implementing methods and analytic tools um, so to ensure that we were able to gauge progress towards our benchmarks, to use data to inform our work, to create feedback loops for staff at all levels, um, and, and of course, to comply with funder requirements and to be able to articulate our impact externally. Uh, so some of the things we did at that time were collaborating with our sites to create localized reports and dashboards and things that could really lift up the data for different types of audiences. Um, and then connected to all of this was, you know, a strategy to find ways to build a stronger culture around data and around learning. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about that culture building piece and how we began to approach that. So to start, we asked ourselves some relatively basic questions. You know, what does a learning culture look like? What are the strategies that can help us to build that stronger learning culture? And as we looked to the field for some guidance, one of the more valuable resources was the work done by the Leap of Reason ambassador community. So this is work that was started by Mario Marino um, many years ago uh, and is now being led by a group of a few hundred leap of reason ambassadors. And I should say that I am one of those ambassadors. And I encourage you all to check out their resources online. There's some really great stuff and um, it's all free and accessible. And one of the resources was that we used was their performance imperative, which was published in 2015. Uh, and that uh, document, that framework, um, essentially identified seven pillars of high performance. And I won't go through all of them. There were things like, you know, courageous and adaptive um, leadership, uh, disciplined and people-focused management. Um, but one of those pillars was having a culture that values learning. And so based on uh, that pillar in the uh, performance imperative, um, you know, what we began to say is that, you know, we need to be an organization in which the board, in which management, and, and staff really need to be willing to take on the challenges that come with collecting and using data and information in meaningful ways. Uh, that is not work that uh, feels um, innate and, and organic in a social service setting. So we really have to figure out how we make this work. We need to be looking for opportunities to benchmark um, ourselves against the field, against our own performance, um, we need to be open and transparent about our results, you know, positive or negative, and make sure that we're looking for those learning opportunities. We need to make sure that our staff 
you know, have a belief that using data is really integral to ensuring that we're achieving positive outcomes and impact for young people. We need to make sure we're continually seeking to improve uh, those outcomes. Um, and, and everyone in the organization should have high expectations, both for themselves uh, and for their colleagues. Um, a couple of other things that we lifted up uh, was that you know, the leadership needs to really lead by example and encourage staff to be curious, to ask questions, to really push each other. We find that data is a great tool for lifting up questions um, as well as seeking answers. Um, and oftentimes when I'm leading an exercise with a site where we're looking at data, it is really about thinking about what are the questions that get raised here. Um, we also wanted to uh, highlight the importance of making sure that the exercises that we were generating, the learning exercises, really felt safe to our people. Um, we did not want to introduce this work as a gotcha exercise. Um, and in fact, when, when we implemented some of our initial KPI reporting, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, we de-identified all of our sites. We wanted to make sure people really felt comfortable with the direction we were going in uh, before we, we sort of developed more transparency. Um, and then the last piece here is really just about ensuring that leadership is creating a space uh, to really carve out the time, uh, not only to invest in all of the work that's required to collect and analyze information, but also to be reflective and to kind of take a step back and, uh, and, and take stock of where, where we are. Um, I'm gonna just come back again to those initial strategic planning objectives, talk very briefly about um, just our focus on being able to use data to lift up best practices, to be able to share that information as a way of learning across our sites. That is work that has evolved over time. And then the other piece that um, I'll talk just a little bit about today has to do with engaging in strategic research efforts that, you know, help us to achieve our, our knowledge generation goals and our, our related learning goals. So I'll bring us back to our timeline. And so over that five-year period, um, you know, we implemented a host of new strategies to advance our work with data and with learning. So you can see, you know, in 2016, that was when we created our first outcomes reports. Uh, we started running a daily census report to have a real-time reflection of, you know, how many young people were in our care every night. Uh, in 2017, we introduced our um, initial key performance indicator reporting, which was inclusive of some of our core program data metrics, like our stable exit rates, like our occupancy rates, but also included metrics related to other parts of the organization, uh, development and fundraising, um, some of our, um, our governance work. Um, and we slowly kind of uh, packaged all of that into a quarterly reporting mechanism for our sites. And then along the way, we've been focused on revising some of the protocols uh, for how we collect information, making sure we're continually revisiting our um, uh, data systems and our reporting tools and really being responsive to our site partners. And then in 2020, a couple of things happened. One is we came to the end of our strategic plan timeline. Um, and then of course, COVID-19 hit, which had a huge uh, impact on our work. Uh, and if we have some time during Q&A, we can maybe come back to, 
to that and talk a little bit about the impact of, of COVID. So, you know, one of the things that did happen is we didn't immediately jump to a new strategic plan, but uh, in 2021, we did move ahead with a new two-year strategic plan. Uh, so we're still in the midst of that work. And I just wanted to share briefly with you all that we did devise another goal that is now focused not on building or becoming a learning organization, but rather enhancing our standing and building our capacity further as that data-driven learning organization. So, uh, you know, we have four objectives. One is about just continuing to improve the ways in which we're collecting information, uh, the ways in which we're designing those key performance indicators, looking to expand um, the metrics and the outcome measures that we use to, to demonstrate our, our impact and our progress. Um, we uh, you know, have, have been sort of broadening our outcome measurement to incorporate uh, new things that we want to be looking at. Um, you know, in addition to housing and employment and education, we want to be focused on the social and emotional well-being of the young people we serve. We want to be focused on their ability to connect to caring adults. Uh, those are just some examples of new measurement that we've been piloting. The second objective is all about improving the ability uh, to use our data, right, to, in order to strengthen our impact and just to get better. So for us, that's meant uh, piloting some new visualization tools that allow for interactive engagement with the program data and also just engaging in a, a deeper and more sophisticated level of analysis when it comes to all the great data that we have, um, inclusive of some work that we've done to promote our diversity and equity and inclusion work where we're looking at our outcomes through more of a robust DEI lens to make sure that we're seeing equity in outcomes across all of the diverse young people that we're serving. We're, we're also continuing to be focused on leveraging our data, finding strategic partners to really um, be a thought leader in our space. Uh, and then we have an objective too around ensuring that we're using our data to inform our fundraising work to ensure that we're you know, telling our story in ways that can um, help to attract a deeper level of philanthropic investment. So I'll come back to our timeline uh, just for, for the last time, just to be able to demonstrate that you know, over the last couple of years, Again, you know, we're, we've continued really to revise those protocols. Uh, you know, I mentioned that you know, we try to be a, a trauma-informed and a strength-based organization. Part of that means being thoughtful about the kinds of questions that we're asking young people when they first come to Covenant House. And we've had to revise some of the terminology, some of those questions over time uh, to be more inclusive, to be more strength-based. Uh, and then I mentioned some of those interactive tools that we've uh, introduced, and I'll, I'll show you what that looks like in a minute. Um, here are just a couple of the tools that we've developed over the past few years. On the left is the first page of a two-page impact report that we generate annually. We create versions for the full agency as well as for each of our sites. Um, on the right, you see one of our program dashboards. This is what I report up to our board of directors every quarter. Uh, and we create site versions of these dashboards as well that all of our sites uh, receive on a quarterly basis. 
Um, here you see a couple of examples of reports that our teams are able to run directly in our ETO system. These are newer reports that we've created. One of them is basically provides kind of a youth snapshot that pulls together some of the key information about a young person, uh, some of their you know, levels of wellness and engagement and progress towards their goals. Um, so this is, I think, a great way to give the teams um, a direct benefit to all of the information they're capturing, right? This is a tool, they can run a report right in the system, they can print it out, they can create a PDF, whatever they wanna do, but it gives them direct access and a reflection of the data, which is so critical. Uh, the other report you see is just a sample of more of a program summary uh, that lists, you know, who are the youth who are active and helps to monitor some of the metrics and, and documentation and tracking. Uh, this slide just shows you some um, screenshots of those interactive dashboards that I mentioned. We have been using a Tableau for the past couple of years uh, to take all of the data that we've been, you know, sharing with our sites every quarter, but largely through kind of PDF reports and giving them the ability to go in and interact with the data to hover over the charts and see more details, to filter for things like race and ethnicity or gender identity or length of stay in programs. And this has really heightened our abilities to, to learn from the data and it's made it a little bit more fun and interesting as well. Um, I'll talk very briefly just about some of the research that we've undertaken as a part of our strategic plan uh, focus around that area. Um, a few years ago, we commissioned some studies that really looked at the intersection between human trafficking and youth homelessness and uh, really helped us to elevate that issue um, in the community and among our peers. Uh, we worked with the National Network for Youth and Schoolhouse Connection on a paper lifting up the uh, benefits of transitional housing for young people experiencing homelessness. And this was a place where we were really able to leverage all of the great data that we were collecting and have that be informative of a really helpful piece for the field. And then most recently, we partnered with MDRC, um, which is a, a really well-known and, and a great research organization uh, to look at the workforce experiences of young people at Covenant House and, and to be able to lift up uh, not only their experiences, but their perspectives, their aspirations, their challenges, um, all related to um, the navig navigating the job market, navigating um, uh, the, the, the world of work. So I'll just wrap up by talking a little bit about some of the things that we are currently working toward. Uh, you know, I mentioned some of the new measurement work that's underway. You see some examples of that here. You know, we're constantly looking to refine our measurement and protocols. As I've said, we know that we need to be looking more at the long-term impact of our programs and devising strategies to do that. Uh, we're continuing to leverage our data to learn more about that intersection between human trafficking and youth homelessness. Um, and as I said, you know, continuing to use data in support of our, our DEI analyses and, and that work. Uh, and then finally, you know, I just want to underscore the importance of bringing young people into conversations about research and evaluation. And I will admit that 
this has been sort of lacking, I think, in, in my approach. And so I think in our next strategic plan, we will definitely have more um, concerted effort around just making young people more active participants in a learning process. I mean, it's sort of obvious, but it's a really critical uh, piece of our work going forward. And so I just wanted to end on that note. So that concludes what I wanted to share today. I'm happy to turn it back over to you, Jeffrey, for some Q&A. And I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and, uh, and listening to me for the past 30 minutes or so. I want to thank you, David, uh, and and just a couple of things, uh, a couple of observations. Just listening to you speak, uh, and you know, I've been digging into your materials over the last month or so as we've been planning this. But but just hearing hearing you talk today, um, the the focus from the organizational culture from the top down relative to the buy-in, uh, the the obvious exhibition of servant leadership, both on your part and the part of of the people that you work for and with. Um, the trauma-informed care model, uh, which changes the, the questions uh, and the way that we approach uh, people in crisis, uh, you know, uh, focusing more on uh, what happened to you than what's wrong with you and, and, uh, and making sure that we don't further traumatize people in terms of how we deliver program. And then, uh, and in keeping with my background and training, uh, the whole appreciative inquiry approach, uh, what are we doing well, what would make that better? Uh, and, and the whole idea that if you, if you change the, the questions, then you can change the conversation. If you, if you re-examine what kind of questions you're asking about your own performance and your own performance indicators, then, then that changes your focus and it, it potentially changes the outcome of the service delivery model. So kudos on all of that. You, know, you, got, you guys are really at the state of the art uh, in, in terms of, of some of the, your best practices that we, we talk about in the, in the classroom all the time. Um, and also in terms of the research that you're doing and sharing of that, some of the, the, the stuff that you've commissioned, the publications, uh, you know, you are, you're really leading the pack, particularly when you start talking about um, trafficking and homelessness and addiction and LGBTQ plus and, and how do all of those things combine together, um, you know, because these teenagers are uh, incredibly vulnerable uh, and, and end up uh, being trafficked uh, because of that vulnerability. Um, kids on the streets are an easy target uh, and you guys are really making a difference to A, get them off the street, but also to help us all uh, uh, you know, worldwide to understand better what's really going on here. So, so kudos for all of that. Thank you for all of that. Um, and then the, the strategic plan and COVID thing really intrigued me because you guys are in the middle of a, you know, you're at the end of a five-year plan and this is the time when you conduct your review. Mm -hmm. We're gonna do another three-year plan. You know, two years later, you did come up with another two-year plan, uh, but most organizations would typically, you know, in that final year be doing the, eval the evaluation and analysis. And we're either gonna do a two or three-year update and just sort of keep going and keep working on this, or we're gonna you know, enter that plan-to-plan -plan phase and, and, uh, and start uh, you know, working on another five-year commitment. And then COVID hits when you guys are in what should have been, uh, you know, a, a, a celebratory and 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 uh, strategic planning um, um, summit of of sorts for your organization and sharing some of that with the community. And instead, it's it's uh, that that fast track to intense pivoting that we all did. And clearly, with as many boots on the ground as you have in the service provision model. Um, my, my question is, how did that intense pivot impact your data collection and especially operating in six different countries? Did it fall apart? Did it, did it become you know, more difficult? Um, how did you guys deal with that? 
Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey, for that question and for um, your earlier remarks. I think um, one point I wanted to make first as it relates to the strategic plan work, um, you know, we were, we had worked on a, a new strategic plan and we were prepared to embark upon that plan uh, at the outset um, um, or at the conclusion of our five-year plan, which is right when COVID hit. And so we made a couple of organizational decisions at that time. One was to pause any new strategic plan objectives. So, um, you know, we had done a lot of that work. We basically just kicked it down the road about 12 months. And what we didn't want to do because the impact of the pandemic was um, so heavy upon our sites is we did not want to ask them to do anything um, uh, different to add more work to their plate. Um, we basically just, like I said, just sort of paused on moving any of that strategic work forward in order for them to be able to focus on ensuring the safety of young people, ensuring the safety of staff. Uh, and that really meant a lot of different types of operational pivoting. Um, I mean, you know, we were all affected by this thing. Uh, and certainly for organizations that have residential programs. I mean, this was a huge challenge. Um, but one of the things that I'm really proud of is that, you know, A, we didn't ask our sites to do more, but our team took on more responsibility to lift up the data that all of our teams were, were capturing. You know, I mentioned that we, we typically do a quarterly reporting process and we, we bring our sites together, we share the data, we have conversations. When COVID hit, because we knew that the organization was being affected so greatly, what we, what we pivoted to do was we started looking at some of our metrics on a monthly basis. We started providing reporting that was able for us to more easily detect not only the ways in which the organization was being affected by the pandemic, but also how we were responding. And we wanted to be able to lift up for our sites um, all the good work that they were doing to, A, keep their doors open, um, to continue to provide all the different types of services, uh, to help keep young people employed. I remember one of the charts we began to look at was um, literally a daily employment rate for our young people. And that was one in which we saw immediately how much job loss there was when the pandemic hit. Um, and then it also allowed us to see that rebounding that occurred over time. So that's just one example. But what we wanted to do was, in, in a way, reward the sites for their good work um, and to put the data into action uh, in a time of crisis and, and hopefully in ways that were helpful and that helped to lift up the good work that was happening. That, that that is that's fabulous and and leaning into it uh you know and using it more frequently um uh is, is uh exemplary uh and really i think that really shows the commitment that you have or through throughout the organization you know from all of your service providers um you know the individual folks that are dealing directly uh you know with the the people that you serve all the way up to the the top management of the organization to be able to to you know while we have all of these things to deal with, let's just look at our, let's, let's be more robust. Let's be more engaged. Let's, let's, instead of quarterly, let's go monthly. Let's look at this stuff daily. Um, you know, that, that's a, um, that's a huge um, 
commitment. And I think that probably also led to your being able to do what you, you sort of described uh, briefly was that, uh, you know, by 20, by 21, you are already moving into a two-year update on your plan. Uh, so, so great stuff. Um, we got a couple of uh, hands up and I'm going to move uh, to, uh, to Jonathan here. Uh, you had a question if you'd like to uh, join us. Yes, uh, thank you very much. My question is, um, how do you address criticism that every dollar towards becoming or maintaining a learning organization is a dollar not spent on direct services? Thanks, Jonathan. That, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that there's always, I guess, criticism when organizations spend money on things other than direct care, if that's the line of work you're in. I think probably um, much of that criticism or, or most of it is tied to things like fundraising and things like that. Um, but I could definitely see where some of our external stakeholders may have questions about that. And I, and I think, you know, the way we would address that is sort of how we address it internally, which is to say, we really have to build in um, these exercises, a focus on learning into the daily operations. And so there isn't so much a separation between the direct care that's happening and the learning exercises. Um, so it, some examples of that might be, um, you know, if those direct care staff are able to efficiently kind of work in the timing to be able to do their documentation work, um, then it can minimize the time it would take away from them, you know, built to build relationships to engage directly with, with young people. So we've tried to provide some guidance around what that can look like. Um, and I think too, the whole point of this is that if we do this work well, if we're efficient, but also really find insights in the data, then ultimately it's going to help us uh, provide a better level of care. Um, so I think being able to demonstrate that could also help to dissuade some of those concerns so that in addition to the staff, we're also educating our external partners about the importance of this work and the fact that it really is kind of in tandem with uh, that direct care component. I hope that that was helpful. I would hitchhike on that too, to say that relative to, to allocation, um, you know, when we're looking at uh, um, you know, management and fundraising versus program, that everything that you're talking about, you know, data collection analysis, um, the daily diligence that you're putting into that, to me, all sounds like allocated toward program, that this yeah. is part of the program, this is understanding how the program works. Um, you, you know, we're using that that data in our fundraising, we're using that data to make make management decisions, but but just relative to allocation of resources, uh, you know, in keeping with standard best practices of accounting, I would I would lump all of that into into programmatic, um, yeah. and and even with a you know with a feather in the cap, so to speak, to say and 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 good job, um, and and I also just for you know was really impressed when you, um, with the slide where you showed all of the different tools that you're using, all of the different management tools that you're using to track program, and then you bring that all under one roof, you know, made made total sense. Um, and uh, Eric uh, has a question. Uh, yes, I appreciate the uh, conversation today. I want to know how did you get your uh, staff to buy into data-driven results? Uh, how did you expand data competency among your staff 
from top to bottom because seemed to cover a wide variety of uh, information. Uh, it had to be interpreted at uh, many different levels. So how did you get the buy-in to support the process? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Those are great questions. I think you know, when it comes to buy-in, you know, the approach that we have taken all along, including sort of the steps that preceded my time at the organization, is there was real... Um, I think, earnest attempts at building consensus. So in those initial conversations more than 10 years ago, that wasn't a top-down approach to say to our sites, this is the mandate, this is what we're doing. It was introduced as this is a way that can help us become a more unified organization uh, to, to really begin to improve uh, in terms of outcomes. And we gathered a lot of input around what that outcomes framework might look like. Um, when it came time to implement our system, you know, that was a very localized approach in which we said, let's look at what you're already doing and let's make sure that as we bring you onto this shared platform, that it's actually gonna become a better system for you. Uh, forget about the, the fact that we'll be able to compare performance and, and learn from each other. We really were focused on creating the best possible system so that it was easier to use. So that definitely helped with the, with the buy-in piece. And then what we've done subsequent to all of that, as we've revisited some of those protocols and revisited language, like I had shared, those are instances in which we go to the sites and really, you know, gather their input. We let folks opt into uh, processes where they can kind of be advisors uh, we've really just tried to bring people along and make sure that folks feel heard. And I think that's really been helpful uh, on the buy-in front. In terms of competency, you know, that's really been a matter of uh, having the infrastructure and capacity to train. Um, and I think how that has worked in our system is, um, you know, my team does some kind of, you know, universal type training but all of our sites have somebody or a team of folks who are responsible for kind of the local management of their data and QA work. So what we try to do is make sure that those folks have the skill set and the knowledge to be able to train locally, um, and we step in if we need to. Um, but I, I think the, the last thing I'll say is, even within those training engagements uh, and with the focus on skill building, We've really tried to um, infuse this kind of learning culture idea so that it doesn't feel like to the staff that this is about, you know, monitoring them and, and uh, looking for opportunities to, to judge. And it's really about achieving better outcomes for young people. And I think that framework has helped us to, uh, you know, keep that buy-in uh, over time. Well, and, and you guys are actually using the data, and, and I think all of the people that are performing services can see that. It's useful to them yeah. to know where they stand. You'll be able to take a snapshot of an individual client or of the site or what's going on with my colleagues. Um, you know, unlike uh, the massive amount of data capture that we do for a large-scale uh, uh, government grant, yeah. Um, where, where sometimes the people that are engaged in social service provision are wondering what the heck do we do with this except for get more funding. 
and and somehow you know uh, and and the uh, the development staff is chasing the programmatic staff to for data collection. This is a whole different ballgame. This is about me as a as a as a uh, as a counselor or as a as a person who's working directly with clients using this data in my own practice in my own daily way of dealing with the clients. Uh, that's informative to me, so that I can look back and go, where were we last week? Where, you know, how, what's his, his you know, the, the, the uh, some of the data that you're capturing to give an individual profile of yep. each of the clients. Uh, I, I would think, as a, as a counselor, as a practitioner, as a social servant, would be really useful information. Yeah, and, and Jeffrey, but before we jump to another question, just one thing I, I wanted to share too is, you know, a, a, a lot of our, I think most of our sites also have responsibilities for entering data into like an HMIS system for some of their uh, government grant funding. And so we have to help them be able to manage in some cases sort of a dual obligation to enter data. And one of the criticisms we often hear related to those other systems, to your point, is that they put information in and they have no way of getting it out. Right. And, and one of the things I wanna make clear with you all is that all of our sites have the same capabilities that my team has when it comes to generating reports and looking at data. So in other words, there's nothing that my team can do that a site can't also do. We, we use the same reporting tools uh, to engage in the analysis. The only difference is, is that our, uh, my team has the ability to look across and to generate those comparative metrics whereas sites only have access to their own data. Um, but I just wanted to make it clear that we've really tried to democratize that information and make nice. sure that folks, you know, anything we can see, they can see and then vice versa. Nice, excellent, excellent. Uh, Dr. Chicoto Schultz has had her hand up for a minute here. Uh, th thank you, Dr. Howard, for your uh, engaging talk, talk with us. Um, this is an area I'm also kind of very uh, interested in, particularly as it relates to nonprofit organizations. So, and, and my question kind of relates to just the comment you, you were making. Um, one of the things that we see a lot in the literature is how nonprofits encounter this challenge to have to provide reporting to multiple funders. Um, and because sometimes multiple funders are asking for different uh, outcome measures, they're asking for different things. But something you said was quite intriguing to me. You said that um, you are able to lift up data for different audiences. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on, on, on that in terms of what exactly does that mean in giving your organization the ability to report to multiple funders using the same data that's been generated? And then secondly, how has the, you know, the capacity um, for your organization being a data-driven learning organization, how has that also helped or impacted your ability to advocate and lobby better? Thanks for those questions. I think in terms of sort of data for different audiences and multiple funding requirements, you know, one of the things that I, that I didn't probably specify was when we built our system, our, our agency-wide platform, of course, we built in some standard measures and things that we want to be apples to apples across our sites, but our sites have the flexibility 
to build in additional forms, to build in additional questions. And inevitably, they have local funders that want to see information in specific ways. And we can um, modify the system so that they can collect what they need to collect. And then we can also help to build reporting tools for them that can pull whatever those metrics are. So the system is very nimble and we've built capacity to be able to help our sites uh, you know, take advantage of that nimbleness. Um, and then you know, in terms of audience, I think really the primary audience for much of the data that we're gathering and looking at are our site partners. You know, I mentioned we do uh, literally a quarterly data review with every site where we look at a host of measures and have a conversation about, you know, what, what is the data telling us? What are the trends? Uh, and those conversations have evolved over time. I'd like to think that they've added a lot of value in terms of what we know about our work and how we can get better. Um, we host a webinar series internally where uh, it's not always about data, but we lift up learnings and have conversations like the one we're having today. Uh, we have our board, of course, as, as a specific audience. Um, and then we have kind of the, the general public. Um, and the reality is, you, you know, there's only a portion of our internal metrics that we really leverage for our, our public dissemination. I think we're doing more and more of that over time. Um, uh, and, and some things I think lend themselves more to the promotion of our work, whereas other measures are maybe a little too much in the weeds and are really more about, you know, how can we improve? How can we get better? Um, and then in terms of advocacy and, and lobbying and, and po our policy related work, um, you know, we've made some investments recently to build more infrastructure to, to engage in those kinds of conversations, to be, um, have a presence on the Hill, uh, to support even our international sites with local advocacy work. Um, and those are places where we have been able to leverage our data, but probably more so we've leveraged the research that we've done. So with each of those research examples that I shared, um, you know, we were equipping policymakers with that information. I can think of a few examples where, you know, we had United States senators literally citing our human trafficking research on the floor, um, making arguments about better legislation. So that's the kind of thing that excites us. And we definitely want to be focused on, you know, lifting up advocacy efforts by way of the data, by way of the research. Kudos again um, for the for the great work internally and externally and sharing information and advocacy. Um, you, you guys really are hitting on all cylinders, and and it's a it's a joy to to be listening with you and chatting with you today. Um, we we've got time, I think, probably for one more question. If somebody has something else they'd like to add, I'm just gonna jump in because I, I want to see if I got this right. Well, uh, David, what you were just talking about is it seems like, um, so I work in a, the public sector and what I find is a lot of times you're recreating whatever the reporting agency wants locally. So then you're like, okay, are we collecting it? Are we asking it? And then at the same time, oh, this is how this rolls up. This is where this goes. So it's funny, like you're, you're duplicating all of these reports because they just want the answers. And you're like, how do we get there? 
Yeah, it's it's a good point, and I think it's it helps to illustrate kind of the u- ubiquitous challenge that we face in our field because you know, every funder wants something reported a little bit differently and systems don't talk to each other. We've had a a pretty hard time, you know, working with local HMIS systems and our um, continua of care to find ways where, you know, we could maybe just upload information from our ETO system into HMIS um, or potentially have it work the other way. Uh, I, I think there's real work and, and opportunity uh, to improve the integration of systems. So we don't have to ask staff to spend so much of their time uh, entering data. It's, it's a big challenge for sure. I'm also curious, in, in, you mentioned how you're carving out time to allow your staff to take, take a step back and, and review the data. How are you managing to do that? Because I think sometimes that's another challenge where we need to, you know, meet our programming programmatic needs and do the work but at the same time having time to step back well i think probably the main way we do that is through those quarterly engagements that i mentioned um you know that's a process that my team manages uh we do our best to ensure that the folks who are a part of those conversations represent you know leadership and program management and the folks managing data probably not so much the direct care teams. Um, so we, we use those opportunities to make sure we're looking at the numbers, making sure things look accurate, that they're you know, a proper reflection of the work that's, that's happening locally. Um, and then the hope too is that in those discussions, we're modeling ways in which our sites can have similar conversations locally, which is more challenging because to your point, we're talking about taking time away from direct care, to look at data, to have conversations. So I think we're still figuring some of that out, you know, so many years into this work and trying to find that right balance and the strategies that can uh, make it easier to incorporate those practices. But it, it's it's a constant challenge for sure. It seems to be a challenge that you guys are definitely up to uh, and and are doing a, a grand job with. And and I, I want to I thank you, uh, for, for sharing your experience and your knowledge with our audience today. And I, I would just offer any closing remark or word of encouragement that you'd like to, to, to give to those of us who are really interested in these kinds of things. I think that, you know, like we've talked about, this is a hard part of the work, right? Um, you know, at Covenant House, our direct care teams, you know, they don't come to work to enter information into a computer. They wanna work with young people. And so, I would just encourage everyone to be creative and thoughtful about how we can best incorporate these exercises, which of course are important and I think really necessary in order to get better. Um, So how can we do that in the most efficient way possible? Um, It's a continual learning process, but um, just really grateful for your interest in the topic. And uh, if folks wanna reach out to me, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, Jeffrey and team can give my contact information. I know a couple of you had a few uh, questions that I'll respond to offline, but this was a real pleasure. Thank you.
it was certainly a pleasure to have you here today. And, and uh, again, um, you know, we, there's so many things that we talk about uh, as, as practitioners and as, as teachers, and, and you guys really seem to be modeling the, the best of the best. Uh, and, and certainly from culture creation, when you talk about learning culture, uh, servant leadership from, from your office and, and from uh, the people that you work with and for, and clearly at the board level um, in support of your efforts, um, you, you, guys, you folks are really doing a, an awesome job uh, on, on behalf of these, uh, of these folks that, that so desperately need help. And in so many different places, US, Canada and, and uh, Central America. Um, so thank you again for the great work that you do and, and for sharing all of that uh, on our behalf. Thank you all for your participation today. Uh, and, uh, and again, David, thank you so much to you. Uh, we wish you all the best and uh, we'll look forward to additional conversation in the future.